0: Hey, everybody. Hey, everybody. We have a great show for you today. I'm in Miami for NFT Basel or whatever they're calling this thing. I just spoke at the pre money event. And today on the program, I'm interviewing three founders that went through our launch accelerator that have invested in great companies. And uh, one of them's in podcasting. One of them is doing an e commerce search engine and one of them is doing a no code e commerce platform. You're going to love all three companies. We talk about getting early product market fit and raising that first round. From investors, when you're just a two or three person company with an MVP or a modest product, and we're going to talk about securing the bag. But first, some news: Square is rebranding as Block, and Jack Dorsey is back in the headlines. Uh, I love the stock; I own the stock. I'll never sell the stock if Jack Dorsey is running the company. That's my belief: is that he's a great entrepreneur, and his best days are ahead of him. And then, Spotify's Wrapped came out yesterday, and it is absolutely flooding social media. We'll talk about the genius of that growth hack finally a friend of the all-in pod and the this week in startups pod uh, brad gerstner's spac grab went public today it's the largest public debut of a south asian company so congratulations to him and the team at grab we'll talk about that stick
1: with us this week in startups is brought to you by lemon io need to speed up your product development without draining your budget Hire vetted engineers from Europe at lemon.io. Go to lemon.io slash twist to get 15% off for the first four weeks. Marketer hire. Need expert marketing help fast? Hire vetted marketing specialists this week from the company already used by Netflix, Allbirds and more. Get $500 off your first hire at marketerhire.com slash twist and use the code twist and Data IQ. AI driven growth is not just about technology. It's about organizational transformation. Join more than 45,000 people worldwide who are driving results with Data IQ. Visit DATAIKU.com.
0: Okay, everybody, in our first story, Square has rebranded to block to align itself with cryptocurrencies and obviously the blockchain. You remember on Tuesday's episode, we covered Jack is stepping down as the CEO of Twitter. And I mentioned, hey, he's likely to put more effort into his passions, which are Bitcoin and the blockchain. And here we go. I think perhaps Twitter and Square, because they both logically could pursue cryptocurrency features, were maybe going to start overlapping. And then you'd have to think, well, when Jack has a new idea as CEO, which company does it go to? Does it go to Square or does it go to Twitter? I just saw on Twitter, they were going to do NFTS in your wallets and verify that if you're going to use an NFT of the A Yacht Club or whatever hipsters uh, or lions, you would have to actually prove that you had that NFT to put it into your profile picture, I think was the idea. I'm not sure where they are in executing that. But there's no reason that Twitter could not turn everybody's account into a wallet and then start accepting crypto, distributing crypto and go head to head and Twitter should obviously have a payments platform, which would then put it heads up against the cash app. So that was probably one of the things that led to Jack giving up the CEO seat. New technologies emerging, you have Square at scale, and you have Twitter at scale. Where does the CEO put its next idea? Pretty obvious that that's going to be a bit of a conflict going forward. So great idea for Jack to pick one and he controls more of Square and has a bigger interest in Square. And Square has obviously got a massive lead when it comes to finance. Uh, according to the Wall Street Journal, Square holds $220 million worth of Bitcoin on its balance sheet. Pretty interesting having your treasury partially in Bitcoin. A little controversial if I don't know what their total treasury is. Anything more than 5 or 10% of your treasury in an alternative asset would be considered super, super aggressive. Square uh, will still keep the name square for its merchant services business which makes sense since it's known and loved there uh you know those are the little card readers you see at delis and coffee shops or the pos system which means point of sale not piece of anything else uh, just so we're clear about what pos means the first time i heard that in a meeting they were like we're making a pos i was like really i think you guys should give yourself credit for making a really good product not a pos and they're like point of sale right i was like oh yeah that's what i meant <laughs> um So Block is going to represent the suite of tools that Square has. If you don't know, uh, Square also has the Cash App, which has become an absolute juggernaut. We'll get into that in a moment. But that lets you send money, crypto and stocks to other people. Square obviously does payments for small businesses. They have Afterpay, which is, you know, buy it now, pay later, competes with a firm. uh, And he bought Tidal from Jay-Z. You may have seen the photos of Jack, I think, vacationing uh, with... Jay-Z at different points in time, maybe they were doing the deal at that point. Not sure how title uh, plays into all this, but you could imagine with NFTs, Jack making a play to have music rights in title, uh, NFTable or lyrics, be able to be purchased as part of NFTs, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's in a way, uh, the continuing trend of people who own collections of assets, giving them a new name as an umbrella company. Alphabet obviously owns YouTube, Google, Android, go right down the line. Now, Zuckerberg has Meta for their collection of products, and it does let you signal to the market, hey, we are going in this new direction. In fact, Tesla used to be called Tesla Motors, they dropped the motors, they just call themselves Tesla now, because they're obviously doing uh, solar, battery packs, etc. So if you look at blocks, uh, ticker symbol, it's going to stay SQ for Square, for now, uh, Square shares were down 3% on the news, but that's probably a result of the overall market being down at that same time. So I wouldn't attribute that. We'll see over time. I think Square is a juggernaut. I do own some shares in Square, full disclosure, uh, that I got from being in a venture firm that had invested in Square as an LP in that uh, venture fund. I don't trade stocks, to be totally honest, Uh, although my wife did buy a bunch of Roblox, which doubled. So uh, good on my wife. Congrats to her. She was like, I think we should buy Roblox. I was like, I'm not so sure about that one, but go for it. Yeah. And she went for it and she also made the Bitcoin trade. She was like, I'm keep hearing about this Bitcoin and you're talking about it. And these other people in our family are talking about it. Should we buy Bitcoin? I was like, yeah, sure. And uh, that's a seven figure asset she's got in terms of percentage increase, even with my Uber, even with my Robin Hood, literally my wife is in the top 10 appreciating assets in our <laughs> joint portfolio. <laughs> so Cash App subscriptions and services revenue grew 35% year over year. And in Q3, was $474 million. So Cash App is extraordinary. That comes from Cash App app card fees, instant bank deposits, which they charge 1% to 3% on. Uh, and Square overall is going to generate over $16 billion in revenue this year, 2021. They lost a little bit of money. Essentially, they're at break even. They lost like just under $3 million in Q3. And their current market cap is $87 billion. Uh, I think that this company could go 10 to 20x in the coming years with Jack focused solely on it. So I am super long square. I'm not going to sell any more shares of it. Uh, I had sold, I think I sold half of my shares when it was at like $72 a sh- you know a share because that was my previous plan. When I got equities, I would sell half, keep half. Now my plan is maybe sell 10 or 20% and keep the rest. So... You do have to have some sort of plan, and uh, as time goes on, and I build a, a bigger um, book of business, I'm selling less in the companies that I think are going to be here in ten years. And Square, I put in that category with Uber and Robinhood. I think Uber, Robinhood, Square will be more important companies in ten years than they are now, and so I'm I'm all in on that. If you look at Square's price to sales ratio since late of 2016, uh, they're trading at six times. Which I would put in the reasonable category. You see, it peaked up at twelve. People got a little excited about the product. One of the things I noticed was there were these always Cash App trending on Twitter. So Jack, knowing Twitter market, I think that those Cash App trends were you know his company Square being able to understand how to use Twitter really well. But that could also have the appearance of impropriety, even if it's not impropriety. And I'm sure it's not impropriety. But that is another one of those issues. If you keep seeing the Cash App sweepstakes and other marketing on Twitter, it just creates this appearance that maybe Jack or the Square team is using Twitter to build another business. And I'm absolutely saying here that's not true. They would never do anything unethical. Absolutely not. In fact, they would do things way above board because they would also be aware of the appearance of impropriety. But this is one of the things I trained first time founders. If there's an appearance of impropriety, The public interprets it as impropriety so never have the appearance of impropriety what's an example of this i don't know the founder uh goes on vacation and speaks at a conference okay they spent five thousand dollars going on vacation or going to the conference they brought their family who paid for what you got to be really careful with this stuff and so you just always want to be careful with the appearance of impropriety as a founder it's very 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 dangerous to have shareholders think that you might be using one asset to grow another or your own personal bank account. So just got to be really careful with that. And I think that was what was becoming untenable or potentially down the road would be untenable is for Jack to be making decisions about cryptocurrency opportunities for both companies. This is super obvious to everybody when you're growing your startup fast, and I hope you are trying to hire engineers can slow you down like nothing else. Well, there's some good news. Lemon.io will find you a perfect candidate in 48 hours. I thought I was gonna say 48 days because that's probably on average what it takes. No, 48 hours. So what is Lemon.io? You ask me? Well, I'm going to tell you. They're a marketplace of engineers from Europe. Lemon.io is a great solution if you are a technical co-founder and you need to delegate tasks or you have a project that needs specific technology and you don't have that skill on your team. And maybe you can learn from this person, right? Or you're growing rapidly and you need to add developers quickly Well, they're going to match you with a candidate within 48 hours. And if it doesn't work out, well, they'll replace the developer right away. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy. They test and interview every developer to eliminate the risk of a failed project. If you can use a full-time or part-time developer to run your projects faster, go to lemon.io slash twist lemon.io slash twist that's it and you'll receive a 15% discount for the first four weeks of work with your new developer who's gonna crush it for you get in there everybody lemon.io slash twist here's something my crack research team and man do i have some great producers on this podcast who work really hard uh, to make me look smart so shout out to our producers you can reach them anytime producers at thisweekinstartups.com Uh, and they saw this trend from 2017 to 2020. If you're watching on our YouTube channel, youtube.com slash this weekend, you would see this video and it shows the United States from May to June of 2017 and the words cash app and Venmo in terms of searches. And you have but one lone state (laughs) that's blue and blue is representing cash app and the rest of the country's red Venmo. And then you look at like 2018 and you you got about 20% of the country and the states are blue and the rest are red. And so on and so forth, until you get to May- June of 2020, and now it's, you know, uh, almost 50 percent of the country seems to be uh, searching for cash app over Venmo. And uh, this comes from somebody who tweeted this: "At six times price of sales with the founder authority in a great business, block a good value. Will it be a juggernaut? I think so. I don't tell people to buy stocks. Uh, I don't give financial advice. But I will tell you, I'm not selling a share of Square as long as Jack is running the company. I think it's a, it's a, a stock I would want to own for the rest of my life. And I turned 51 last week. So hopefully that's, you know, a couple of decades I got left. I am telling you right now, I have no plans to sell a single share of Square as long as Jack is running the business. I think that highly of him as a visionary founder. He could be quirky. Uh, short. you might not see him on TV all that much. But, you know, having met him and talked to him many times in the early days, I was always very impressed with his product insights and vision. And um, congratulations to him on getting super focused on crypto. I think his best days as an entrepreneur are ahead of him. Um, Also, uh, what a great couple of days I've had for my ego on Twitter, because Spotify wrapped, which is a yearly recap of users listening habits dropped yesterday the app shot up to number one in the app store due to this crazy virality if you don't know what it is they basically tell you your top five most listened to artist songs and now podcasts and they have done this in this incredibly elegant shareable slideshow so every year people share their results on twitter and instagram i would share mine except it's all bts and Katy perry and then mark Knopfler and dire straits and pink floyd uh, because we're on a shared account and my daughters are listening to bts <laughs> and Katy perry and i'm listening to dire straits and mark Knopfler and pink flight or at least that's my story and i'm going to stick to it i'm not listening to bts uh but here's a uh, 12 second clip of producer nick the great producer nick spotify rap all right coming at you here's nick's top five songs on a z morning zoo gecko overdrive radio edit love tonight by shouse hippies featuring to another guru dancing in the moonlight by king harvest Um, But anyway, this gives tons of free viral advertising, people want to share this because it speaks about them, it it lets them peacock a little bit and show what they're into. But the great part of this was, uh, and kudos to my uh, besties on all in as well as my team here, Matt, Jamie, Jackie, Nick, Charles, Rachel and Justin and everybody who helps uh, with this week in startups. I was getting uh, just flooded the last 48 hours with people who had All In and This Week in Startups in their top five. Not one, but both of them. And this was just incredibly heartwarming to me to know that people were listening to thousands and thousands of minutes of those two podcasts. Uh, just absolutely fantastic. And what a great, great idea this was for Spotify to do this. And again, if you just want to look at how effective it is, the Spotify is the number one free app an Apple store ahead of TikTok and YouTube, which obviously are juggernauts. Uh, and if you compare their rankings to last week, they were between 11 and 16 overall. So, probably if you're a founder listening to this, I wonder if there's, you know, if you're a consumer facing app, what yearly recap you could do to create some viral marketing. I wonder if com.com could do meditations or Robinhood could do top trades, but it's so well done. Uh, that i was absolutely impressed now i don't think instagram should do this because uh, or twitter because it would just show how addicted people are and it'd be quite embarrassing to share exactly how many minutes i spent on twitter last year instead of finishing the book but you know fitbit uh, or fitbod or your apple watch talking about your year or peloton in terms of health yeah that would be something they would share but it is a massive engineering undertaking uh, for a company with as much. User data as Spotify has. Think about it. Here's a quote from Spotify's engineering blog. In 2018, the wrapped campaign data pipeline had one of the largest data flows jobs ever run on GCP. That's Google's cloud platform, uh, the contemporary to Amazon Web Services, which resulted in limits around the amount of data we were able to shuffle. In other words, talk about a big data project, tens of millions of users, and then all of those minutes listen. So you need a lot of engineers to do this right uh, if you have a lot of data. Seems like it would be worth doing, and so congratulations to Spotify finally coming around third base here. Friend of both pods, Brad Gersner's Spac for Grab uh, went public today. If you don't know, Grab uh, is based in Singapore. It's basically Uber for Southeast Asia, ride sharing, delivery, and payments. They're the market leader, obviously. Uh, raised four point five billion dollars in this deal that valued the company at forty billion. They're at a $628 million run rate. So that's a nice, healthy uh, multiple. They have 22 million monthly users. So they're a fraction of the size of Uber, but obviously, a pretty a pretty big uh, business there. And uh, this is the largest public debut ever, according to our research for a South Asian company, 30 times larger than the previous record set at 1.2 billion by an Indonesian satellite company, according to CNN business. And uh, Uber obviously has a nice slice of the company because uber was competing with grab they were also competing with dd in china they were competing in russia i've got the name of the company there and instead of competing in a race to the bottom of discounting uber uh made a really smart move to partner with yandex in russia grab in southeast asia and dd creating just well over 10 billion dollars i think in value so Let's move on uh, now that we're through the news. And you get to meet three investments I made through our accelerator. This is from our 23rd class of the accelerator. We give people $100,000 for 6% of their company. We tend to invest in the companies after they graduate. If they grow, we'll make four, five, six bets on them, like we did with Grin, which became a unicorn or Blockable, Lead IQ, CafeX. Many great companies have come out of our accelerator. And we spend 16 weeks with them. Introducing them to hundreds of investors, helping them with their pitch, helping them with their company, helping them with growth, and the accelerator is just one of the great joys of my life. I'm so happy that we uh, created it, and we want to keep building it. And now it's 100% virtual. We used to have people be required to come to San Francisco for at least ten of the twelve weeks because everybody wanted to come to San Francisco back then and meet all the investors here. Now it's 16 weeks, 100% virtual, so you can do it from anywhere. We like to have people who have a couple of customers you know, pre seed round pre their series A, and who want to raise that first seed round of 500,000 to $3 million. That's kind of our sweet spot. So you come we introduce you to everybody. And you're going to see, uh, we really like to focus on founders who build great products and have product velocity. What's product velocity? Very simple. It means that your product is improving every couple of weeks. And you, and you see that growth, the teams with product velocity, that means they're going to delight customers or the chances of delighting customers increases because they're trying new things with their product consistently not constantly consistently two very different things you want to consistently improve the product and share those new features look at the data and iterate on your product so product velocity that's something you really want to think about you know establishing very early in your company if you look at a great product in the world whether it's youtube or, you know, owning a Tesla, or, you know, Google search, they just every couple of months, some new feature would be added to it that would make users delighted. So without further ado, let's meet some launch accelerator founders. Are you falling behind on your q4 marketing goals? Well, wouldn't it be nice to hire a ringer right now to help you out to hit all those important goals and with marketer hire. Now you can They give you access to expert freelancers on demand. There's no long-term contracts, and there's no risk. You can hire experienced specialists across the most valuable marketing disciplines. You know what they are. Paid social, paid search, Google Twitter, Facebook, Insta, you know, those plus you can do SEO, plus you'll do content and you can even get a fractional CMO, a chief marketing officer. There's no long-term contracts. You can cancel at any time. If it's your first time working with freelance talent, they'll start with a no risk trial. They want to make this easy for you. Only hire what you need and stay on budget with hourly, part-time or full-time arrangements. Every freelancer on Marketer hire goes through a rigorous vetting process with industry experts. Freelancers for marketer hire have been hired at over 1500 companies, including top brands like Netflix, Allbirds, and the Lambda School, which we're a small investor in. So here's your call to action get $500 off your first hire, 500, 500 right now. Marketerhire.com slash twist. Marketerhire.com slash twist. You can also get a free consultation on who to hire based on your needs and your goals. So that's 500 right now marketerhire.com m-a-r-k-e-t-e-r-h-i-r-e.com slash t-w-i-s-t okay everybody i thought it'd be nice for you here on this week in startups to hear about some startups one of the great problems with this podcast is you know since we started 11 years ago there were all these giant companies the startups like uber and airbnb and coinbase and Robinhood and com.com that we used to talk about well they got big and they do big company things like go public and they have share prices and quarterly reports. All of that's really important and interesting. And we covered it this week in startups and we all love it. But let's not forget, this show is about startups. So let's talk about some early startups so that we can cover the next Robinhood, the next Com, the next Uber, the next Tesla, when it's a year or two old, right? We want to keep getting back to our roots. So I thought I would just share with you three companies today that we've invested in that I thought were particularly interesting. Obviously, if I invested, that's the highest level of signal, right? If, as uh, Nassim Taleb would say, like skin in the game, right? If I invest in the company and our team spends time with them at our accelerator or found a university or the syndicate, it's going to do, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna, you can take that on a different level than just a random startup I picked off the internet. Although, I might find a really interesting random startup on the internet, include them on the show. We're trying to do more of that. So, if you want to email the brilliant, hardworking, diligent producers at this show, producers at thisweekinstartups.com because they keep everything nice and tight here so we have no mistakes and everything's crisp. That's well, why you love the show because they put in so much hard work. All right. So first up is Paul Block. He is the co-founder and chief design officer. Design, really one of those great skills uh, for starting a company, Airbnb, founders are designers, uh, of fathom.fm fathom is the name of the company fathom.fm is the uh url we can go check it out uh they came in first place actually at the launch accelerators 23rd class so wow 23 times seven wow we've had 100 uh, yeah i guess we're getting closer to 200 now companies go through the accelerator uh and uh they've raised a little bit of money they're pre-revenue and uh they're figuring out product market fit they're growing nicely and crisply uh, with all kinds of great growth. Welcome to the program,
2: Paul. Thank you for having me.
0: All right, Paul, uh, you went through the Accelerator, I'm not sure, what was that, uh, over the summer of 2021? Yeah. Yeah, great. exactly. Awesome. So in COVID, that had to be weird. Are <laughs> Definitely. You, are you based in San Francisco or you're based in where? I'm
2: based in San Diego. So oh. I lived in San Francisco for about a decade and now I'm in San Diego.
0: How wonderful. Oh, God. That's an upgrade if there ever was one.
2: San Francisco's eternal autumn and San Diego's eternal spring.
0: It is like San Diego. The weather is got to be the most perfect weather in the country, I think. Like everybody thinks it's Los Angeles and then you go to San Diego and it's just.
2: Absolutely consistent.
0: Absolutely (laughs) consistent. Everybody's so chill. Yeah. Beautiful downtown, great restaurants, incredible Mm -hmm. beaches. You get to Cabo in 15 minutes on the like uh san diego bus number seven or something it's like literally down the block There's so many great things about it uh now i'm curious would you have and you can be candid about this would you have come for 12 weeks to the accelerator in san francisco like if it wasn't the pandemic do you think or was it the fact that we did it remote that led you to do it
2: well i mean that's a great question um i think that doing the Acceler remotely was fantastic for us, you know, and it, it allowed things to be just incredibly nimble. Um, my co-founder is in Sacramento. So mm. it allowed us both to kind of equally participate. Mm. Um, the, you know, the, if it were in San Francisco, I, you know, there's ways that we could have make, made it work. Um, and I think so it probably would have come.
0: Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's interesting because there's some folks who are from out of town who wouldn't have made it, specifically East Coast folks or people in Europe or Australia. And we've been able to just get more people and, as people said, much more efficient. Uh, So let's get into your product. I may ask you a question or two about uh, the accelerator later and where you're at. But tell us, what's the inspiration for the product? And then uh, where are you at with the current product? What problem does it solve in the world?
2: Definitely. So you know, what is Fathom? You know, we are basically solving the problems of search and discovery in podcasting. And we use uh, AI specifically to address this problem and this need. So often we kind of bring up the fact that, hey, you know, most people only follow up to seven or so podcasters. And uh, the, the issue of finding relevant content is uh, one of the the highest you could say you know problems that people face uh with regards to you know like all of the content that's out there and the experience in that podcasting they have.
0: specifically this is acute people call it the discovery problem right why is this such a problem in podcasting do you think i mean have well, my own theories as a podcaster sure, for a little while sure.
2: i mean we, we <clears throat> one of the ways that we kind of think about it is that it, it goes back to the fact that podcasting and the kind of the, the user experience paradigm kind of evolved around iTunes. And when iTunes came out in 2005, um, well, sorry, when when Apple released the kind of Apple podcast in 2005, uh, the kind of the design paradigm hasn't really changed and kind of it inherited, you know, essentially like iTunes. And so you're asking people to discover content by reading about it. And um, if you've ever like read through the show notes, or even sometimes the title of episodes, they're not really instructive on um, you know, or or they don't really educate you on the you know what's inside of this this episode. And in many cases, you have a two-hour-long episode, so it's 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 a rather large ask for you know a person to just engage with you know podcast content when they're kind of casually browsing.
0: This is absolutely nailed it. All of the information. Uh, about a podcast is inside the mp3 file, right? And you have no insight into that. The only way to figure out what's in the episode is to read the notes uh, in a podcast and the notes are typically because people are so busy making a podcast. They're like episode 56. And they just put three topics and they don't even tell you the timestamps. So podcasters spend very little time structuring their data. There are chapter headings. Now you can see them in overcast that player. Uh, which doesn't does us okay job in search, but nobody seems to be even indexing what's in the podcasts. Nobody seems to be doing chapter headings. We happen to do that, but you need to have, like I do, three full time producers, four full time producers to really have the ability to do this kind of work consistently. Right. So we all see that problem now. Tell us about the solution you came up with and and, and what it does for consumers. Maybe you can give us an illustrative uh, answer or two, right? For example, or two, rather.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So you know. We say like, you know, podcast, sorry, Fathom is really designed for podcast lovers. And so when you listen to a podcast, Fathom, Fathom's AI essentially listens with you, understanding the content and what you love about it, then essentially we, you know, we're able to use the the AI to locate um, interesting points within a podcast, and we're able to select that interesting point that's also most relevant for you. So we You are now able to kind of scroll through a feed of content, you know, similar to TikTok in a way, you know, it's, it's, you're, you're getting kind of like a small segment that's most relevant from you from the podcast episode. So it's this kind of AI generated highlight. That's one branch of what we do. So we, so we're really kind of using the AI to kind of deeply understand what's going on inside of the, the episode. And based upon what you listen to, it's going to start recommending you content based upon your preference so now it's it's essentially it's it's seeking out it's finding content deeply within podcast episodes that is relevant for you so it's not based upon the title it's not just based upon the show notes it's based upon the actual content um
0: so you are listening to the podcast that i'm listening to uh you've now got the transcript somehow you know all the words in it you know when i'm talking about a specific tv show or apple and then you can build some sort of profile of me jason and now Correct. mine's going to be listening to the knicks i'm listening to uh the brett stinella podcast red scare sam harris i mean this i have a very diverse taste set so that's going to be kind of weird but then you not through the titles and say oh if you like preet bahar you're going to like lawfare if you like brett stinella you're going to like the watch like that's obvious right we right. already see that inside the spotify app this podcast is similar to this. What you're saying is, I listen, and inside this podcast, they're talking about right wing stuff, left wing stuff, you know, art house movies versus popular movies. And you're going to try to find me by looking inside of other podcasts. Those moments that correlate, am I correct, correct in describing that? That
2: is correct. Right. I
0: always like to reflect it back because then I it gives me a fuller understanding. It's one of the tips I do for when I'm training new angel investors. If you can recap back to the founder, reflect back to the founder that you understand it, it makes the founder feel good. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, it makes you feel heard, right? We all sure, want to feel sure, heard. Sure, sure. So there's a sure. little tip for angel investors listening to the pod, and there are many of them. And it also makes me confirm that I actually understand it. Because if you don't understand a company, how can you invest in it? The potential for positive change with AI is huge, but seeing that value is hard. AI driven growth is about organizational transformation, not just technology. And many businesses struggle with bringing AI initiatives to fruition. That's where Data IQ comes in. Data IQ is the platform for everyday AI, systemizing the use of data for exceptional business results. At its core, Data IQ allows companies to leverage one central solution to design, deploy, and manage AI and analysis and analytics applications. And it's accessible to everyone, whether technical or on the business side. Data IQ also facilitates using pre-built components and automation wherever possible to streamline work processes, as well as consistent management and governance across teams and projects to create transparent, repeatable and scalable AI and analytics programs. Visit Dataiku to learn more. That's dataiku.com. Dataiku.com. D-A-T-A-I-K-U.com. All right, so this is absolutely fantastic. Now, uh, what comes next in terms of, you know, you just, when I'm listening, are, are you is the goal for you to be a search engine of these podcasts and recommendation engine, or do you want to go heads up against the podcast player from Apple, the podcast player from Spotify? for well, listeners, you know, how dream do you think big. about that? Yeah,
2: yeah. I mean, I mean, we're we're dreaming big, and you know, and this recommendation and you know highlight generation is just like one arm of what we're doing. We also have this next generation search. So the next generation AI powered search is you can now ask a question in you know plain English. And we will find the exact moment in a podcast that is is relevant to it, mm. where the podcaster is actually answering your question. So in that way, our AI is able to appropriate human intelligence to, to answer your question. So in that sense, yes, we are kind of getting into the area of, you know, creating a audio search engine um, that's really, really fun to play with. It kind of, it's almost like an oracle or a... Uh, you know, in, in some ways, it's kind of like one of those eight balls
0: <laughs> that you might have played with as a
2: kid, or it's yeah. like, you know, what does this AI and, you know, the rest of the podcastosphere uh, think about this, and you'll get some kind of interesting results back from it. Um, the, you know, I, I love in that context, I love actually answer uh, asking big questions about like, what is the meaning of life and mm. you know, etc, just to see you know what what can the 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 AI generate for me what can it what can it produce from within podcast content so there's a lot of uses for that I you know and the I'd say the other thing that we're just to kind of give you a heads up what we're working on ar- right now kind of in our r and d um, is we are doing um, AI powered topic segmentation so mm. we are now generating uh, chapters uh, for every single podcast episode.
0: Oh wow yeah. so if a podcast and most don't doesn't do chapters you know joe rogan will put out a three-hour podcast so what you're telling me is you'll go into joe rogan and come up with an ai way to using ai to make your own chapters correct and you you had to build that software yourself correct like yeah to do that So that's
2: all our in-house model we have a a great new machine learning uh engineer he's a Ph.D. His name's uh, Uelvis Gonzalez. He's awesome. He just joined the team a little while ago and he's been working on that kind of nonstop. And mm. uh, we've made some awesome breakthroughs. And uh, so in the coming months, we're going to be releasing that kind of it's uh, we we think people are going to really enjoy it just because it also, again, it it gives the the user uh, or the listener, um, the the ability to kind of jump into a part of the conversation that's most relevant for them? Well,
0: I mean, just think about it, when I prepare for the all in podcast, let's say, and I'm kind of play the role of the moderator there, you know, I would love to be able to type in Rittenhouse verdict, you know, into fathom.fm. And then instead of me having to scrub ahead and try to find it, you just tell me, hey, Joe Rogan did talk about it. Hey, Ben Shapiro did talk about it. Hey, Rachel Maddow did talk about it. Hey, it actually came up on Bill Simmons and it came up on Prepahar and it came up on this podcast and just jump me from chapter to chapter. Is it possible to put it in that mode, which is like almost like a supercut of all of the times people mentioned, I don't know, Quentin Tarantino. You know, she sure. was talking about NFTs last week or I just love Quentin Tarantino. So I make a feed called Quentin Tarantino Now, anytime a podcast comes up, or for me, it might be Dire Straits, since I love Dire Straits, uh, or Ridley Scott, my favorite director, boom, it just gives me every Ridley Scott update. Because sometimes, like, I have a Mark Knopfler Google alert for this reason. Every day, I get two or three mentions of Mark Knopfler. I go check it out. I'm, like, on top of it, like a sociopath. You know, like, is there a sociopath mode here? (laughs) Like an obsessive, Uh, compulsive fandom mode? You know,
2: um, know, one, one thing that's really amazing about... you know, kind of the era that we're in. And my co-founder, Ken Miller, he often talks about how we're entering into this age of cognition now with with artificial intelligence and how it's, you know, giving us these kind of like, you know, these new superpowers and Mm. in the way in which we are now able to kind of surface, uh, you know, conversations and ultimately ideas. uh, There's all sorts of weird and wonderful things that now become possible. We've actually talked about that very thing um ourselves, you know, we we have found with Fathom, um, when we are just kind of scrolling through our feed of recommended content, there's all sorts of interesting conversations that you come upon that you're like, oh, this looks awesome. I can't listen to it right now. You know, but mm. you, when you like it, you know, it kind of, it just pops in your little like collection and you can go back to it later. But now I have like hundreds of episodes that I have not listened to. And, you know, wouldn't it be awesome if we also then just build a tool that allows us to Listen to the, you know, most relevant parts for, for us you. from for yeah for for me because the so AI cool. has a you know we call it like a thought vector or a taste vector for you mm. you know in this hyperdimensional space it kind of knows uh, a lot about what your interests are based upon what you've listened to and it's you know auto selecting kind of intelligently selecting portions of a conversation so that you know you're kind of so smart. able to trim down how much time that you are that that's required to kind of you know f- get to the, to the meat of the of the conversation, that which is most valuable to you,
0: yeah, one thing I you mean, know I'm looking at the um, test flight right now. Uh, test flight is how you test new applications, and I think fathom will let you at fathom.fm join the test flight. I wonder if you know like the album art is such a wasted amount of space in the UI. Mm. It's just like this giant takes up half the screen or a forty thir- percent of the screen. Yeah. I wonder if like you replace the marketplace or the all- in uh, piece of artwork with your semantic chapters that you created and then you would be surfacing all this data would just change the entire experience from you know like the cards to just here's like a list of all the moments and hey we're dropping you into the third moment and you can watch your status bar i don't know if you've seen that in overcast when you swipe right if you do have chapters which they bury the chapters too i think they should have chapters be at the top somebody should put chapters at the top so people know it exists it's just such a better experience um, so, so just yeah, yeah, A little no, design test that. you might want to do. Yeah.
2: Yeah. I mean, uh, just to comment on that specific portion. And yeah, I mean, I encourage anyone who's listening to definitely go to fathom.fm. You're welcome to join our test flight. It's our beta app. It's public. You know, you know, pardon the uh, the dust and
0: <laughs> well listen, you're yeah. not you're 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 working on hard AI problems. This totally. is not like the most polished design. This is a very early stage startup. This is my secret, is to like invest in the companies before it's super polished. Right, um, and they, but they, they, the the promise is here in terms of the technology already.
2: Right, and you know they say it's like if you don't, if you're not embarrassed by the first thing exactly. you release, then you you release too late. Um, the uh, you know the uh, so with regards to the cover art itself, so one thing we are encouraging uh all creators, podcasters, to do is start really investing in their podcast by releasing individual episode art so uh in oh can you do that now individual episode art you can yeah oh really hey
0: producers take a note of that we can do individual art we can do individual artwork oh my lord we have to do that now when did that happen Uh, it's been around for quite a while but see the
2: thing is is that just because of the way that um most interfaces uh function it's not really like necessary or a a feature of the interface because the episode or say you could say the, the podcast cover art is so small in most interfaces because it's just kind of a, you know, over glorified spreadsheet that it's not really um, something that's, you know, useful to the user even in terms of navigating. But, you know, our feed really features it much like Instagram. And of course, we are going to be reaching out to podcasters to really encourage them to take to take um, advantage of that real estate. Because that image actually does tell a compelling story, and mm. um you know Netflix themselves have done a lot of tests, and there's a lot of value in selling your podcast you know specifically that episode with an individual piece of art it does tell the universe you know the the uh, listener something about it so um but to your point, yes, there's ways in which we want to start surfacing that those chapters and those topic segments um and there's going to be some user user education around that because it's not something that's um really available to people right now and uh we are working through a user experience that we hope is going to be solving that that issue but the right now the current beta doesn't include that the current beta is really just kind of the MVP experience of scrolling through a feed of uh content that's generated for you by the AI and uh in you know, Very soon, we're going to re- be releasing search on iOS as well as other features.
0: Amazing. Okay, listen, tremendous success. Thank Thanks you so much for having us involved. Yeah, um, You've been able to raise a little bit of money, and we'll talk about that. But uh, at the end of this, I'm going to interview two more founders. I'm going to ask you about the business model and raising money as a group. So stick with us. And next up, uh, another amazing investment I made in the past year or so. This company is called Death. And you can visit the company at shop Deft. Uh, the founder's name is Zach Hudson, and they are building—kid uh, you not—a new search engine to compete with that old one you may have tried Google. Uh, but this search engine is specifically designed around e-commerce, where, in my personal opinion, Google is bought and sold. Google sells all of the inventory now above the fold when you do some kind of commerce search. You need only say. Uh, you know, noise cancelling headphones. And uh, when you do that, what you'll see is they give you that top row. It's all ads. So I'm looking at it right now. I just typed in noise cancelling headphones while we're on the show. Five or six links up top all paid for. Who knows if they're good or not. And the ad button that tells you it's ads is so tiny that uh, it's literally the smallest item on the page. Under it, two links for Bose that are ads. In other words, when I do it on my browser window right now, I see but one link for noise canceling headphones and it's Best Buy. In other words, it's worthless. This Google search is terrible. It's bought and it's sold. And of course, I already know Best Buy has headphones. There is literally no help here. Uh, It's just garbage, pure, unadulterated garbage. And uh, you wind up just doing a bunch of clicks and making a bunch of money for Google, but you don't get your problem solved because Google's doing the money grab company was founded in 2019. And their beta launched in December of 2020. They finished in second place uh, during the launch accelerators 23rd class. Uh, and if you're wondering what that means is we have the investors who come every week tell us their number one, their number two, their number three startup. Why do we do that? Well, we like for the uh, investors who are coming to pay attention, and to see all seven presentations. So it's a way to make sure they pay attention to all seven take notes to pick their top three and be present. Now, most of them do that. But I would say one out of every 10 or five judges, you know, might get distracted with their email or something like that. And their VCs, and they're busy, you get the idea. So I just asked them when they come to the accelerator, hey, be focused, just please, for one hour, on these seven startups, we get that mutual buy in agreement, and they give their one, two, and three. What it also does is it gives the founders an idea of what each of those investors is most interested in. If they don't like, consumer apps, well, they're not going to vote for found them, or they're not going to vote for deaf, they're going to vote for the B2B companies. And that's good for the founder to know because you can then eliminate them as potential targets for your fundraising round. So they've raised a little bit of money uh, post accelerate, I've been lucky to invest in the company twice. And they had a little bit of revenue last month just starting to ring the register. It's very early days. They have 400 monthly active users. And last month, they did 3000 in revenue. Welcome to the program, Zach.
3: Thanks for having me. All
0: right, Zach. Uh, we have a quick demo here of the product, which we can jump to uh, for the people who are on YouTube. And you can talk over it, maybe to explain what is happening here in the demo.
3: Sure. Yeah. So in this search, a user's typing in pet friendly sectional for under 5,000. And we're getting we're giving completely SEO free, ad free results to the user. In this the user is actually uploading a photo and combining it with text. And we can do some pretty magical stuff with that to help them find an exact match or similar looking products. And then also we save the user the trip to multiple websites with our quick view. So we actually parse information from all around the web so they can make their decision more quickly.
0: Completely beautiful. The entire interface, unlike Google's, which I just savaged, 90% of the Google interfaces clicks. One was a generic SEO, you know, obviously Best Buy has been around for a while. So as you mentioned, deftly in your presentation, Zach, to get into Google's results, you have to be great at SEO, which means you have to have been around for a long time, you've had to have links, you probably have to have spent money on Google, because if you spend money on the ads in Google, it self reinforces, correct?
3: Yep, exactly. And the cost of ads are going way up. And now with the introduction of all these new AI tools that are generating content, SEO has become much a much harder game to play.
0: So this is the nefarious nature of what's happened to search if you spend money with Google, and they'll deny this, etc. But users don't know what's an ad. And they don't, you know, literally, when they ran tests, not Google, independent folks, 67% of people didn't know it's an ad. And in shopping, it's probably 80 or 90% of the people don't know their clicks are monetized. The government, the FTC, the FCC, everybody's out to lunch, they should force them to put these ads in a background color, or maybe a different color for the link. So it was clear to users, but you know, the government's bought and paid for. So, <laughs> what happens here, sorry to be cynical, everybody, is if you spend money with Google, if you're Best Buy and you spend money with Google, you're going to get more clicks. That means you're going to get more inbound links, you're going to get more SEO juice over time. So, what Google has done is they force you to buy ads, they put those first, and then to rank, if you really want to rank, it's not by how good you are, it's really by how much money you've spent over decades with Google, ultimately. Am, am I being too cynical here?
3: No, I think you're spot on.
0: All I mean, right, so that is you should, your opportunity, correct? But continue, yes.
3: Yeah, yeah, I was going to say in, in the original paper from the founders of Google, they said ads lead to great short-term revenues, long-term worse worse results for the customer, and that's kind of what we're building our product around.
0: In other words, Google started in such a great place of indexing the world's data. And now they've basically shot themselves in the foot and become a total money grab. They really basically ruined their own product in a way because yep. everybody's kind of like, uh, it's the only option out there. But now you have another option. Exactly. So one of the other things you're doing is a concierge um, and you are just taking on but one percentage of search. I would say shopping is what, 10% of searches, 5%? Do you have any idea it's, of the overall search pie?
3: It's It's a... There's a uh, a ton of searches. Most of them happen on Google and Amazon today, and it's a it's a 500 billion dollar market just for search. So
0: got it. So if you were to get but one percent of that, a very difficult task, uh, it would be worth five billion dollars. So here we go. You are starting this. You're having great success already. Talk about the subscription product you're testing because this is one of the things that attracted me most to investing in your company and what you're doing. There is a group of people, the top ten percent of any market. Who are price insensitive. In other words, you could ask them for any amount of money. If you solve their problem, they don't care. Uh, these are the people who will pay for fast pass at Disney or the fast pass to go in the fast pass lane on a highway, even though they don't care. They, in other words, they have more money than time. They want to reduce suffering. Explain how the concierge product works.
3: Totally. And just to the, the the subscriptions themselves, we're seeing a lot of proxy for demand for this. You've got mm. Spotify Premium allowing you to remove ads. We've got Superhuman paying for email. We've got Twitter Blue coming out recently. Mm. I think there is an appetite for having this ad-free SEO experience that we're tapping into. But the way the concierge experience I works... I for all
0: three of those that you said. I never thought about this as a concept. What a great way to think about it. What do you, would you call that category? Paying for... It's
3: just getting rid of the junk Mm. if you're not paying for the product you are the product and i think there's consumers that are you know willing to that are just tired of all their data being sold and for selling uh the the links to the highest bidder um and then in terms of the concierge there when you um there's this piece missing in e-commerce right now where you go to a store you have a sales rep who helps you and tells you hey you look good in that shirt for example it's completely missing from e-commerce. So the concierge fulfills that for those people who are just tired of researching online and want a personal touch.
0: Uh, when I was uh, writing about your startup recently, because I shared it with some investor friends, I, uh, you gave me a great example of somebody who would actually use the service. Uh, maybe you could talk about an actual use case without mentioning the person's name of somebody who wanted to buy something. I believe it was a sofa. Um, they were having a particular challenge, and then your concierge solved that. Maybe you can walk us through how that happened.
3: Sure, yeah. So one of our customers had come to us, she'd been looking for a sectional, trying to make a decision for about six months. And at that point, she was just completely frustrated. She wanted to give up, tired of looking online, tired of all the ads and crappy results. So she used Def to do her research, and then she connected with a personal shopper to find a couple of options. And what we do is we prepare these Results, it's almost like a wire cutter post was written specifically for you. Um, mm. And it gives you oh, all- I
0: love that. A wire cutter post written for you.
3: Yep. Genius. E- exactly. And so she has all the things she needs right there in one place. And she was able to make a decision. And she also saved money on the actual sectional. So generally, our users are finding that with our aggregation of discounts, they're saving more than the cost of the membership itself. So it's money back in your pocket. You um, and you save a ton of time shopping online.
0: So to be clear, with your concierge service, the person—it's a real human that you hire, freelance. What do you pay somebody like that? I'm curious. So how do you pay them?
3: So the personal shopper—we're actually working to outsource to all of these amazing experts that are out there. So there are content creators that play a very important role in the decision-making process today. So for um, for the example that I just gave you, we send it off to a, a home interior designer. Um, And she already writes her own blog post. So this was right up her alley and provided the results directly to our customer.
0: And so you're recruiting experts in the field. What type of pay do you give them? I'm curious, just ballpark. Is it?
3: Right now they get a a percentage of our affiliate revenue. And because Ah. we, yep. And that's kind of the icing on the cake for us. So since we already make money for subscriptions, that's margin we have to play with and to pay back to these amazing content providers.
0: Got it. So- they uh, are incentivized to give the best answer. Do you, are, do you have a concern that if they're getting it based on affiliate revenue, then they would steer towards a more expensive product or one that has an affiliate link? What if the progr- there isn't an affiliate program? How do you deal with that?
3: Totally. We're, we're trying to build some uh, curation in there. And we're also working on just giving them uh, money out of pocket just for fulfilling it, regardless of the affiliate revenue. So uh, we're definitely taking that into consideration.
0: And what would an affiliate in this case, you know, a couple thousand dollar sectional that would be a 5% affiliate fee or 2%? It's actually
3: higher. It's closer to 8 And we're actually, we're working on negotiating those affiliate rates with the brands directly. Um, there's potential for us to make anywhere between 10 to 20% average.
0: Uh, fascinating. So if you got 8%, you know, this could wind up being, you know, 200 bucks or something. Then you could just say to the person, listen, if you do it, and it doesn't wind up in them actually buying it, we'll give you 25 bucks or 50 bucks for your time. What What are you testing for the subscription prices? Because I know you were testing two different prices at some point.
3: Yeah, so we have a basic subscription, which allows you to customize our search results. So there's some really cool stuff you can do with that. And then we charge 20 month for the personal shopper. We're testing out some annual plans. We'd also testa- tested out a usage based model as well to see if how people are going to interpret that. I, we're definitely leaning towards subscription than we are usage based.
0: So uh, how do you plan on getting this product out there? How do you plan on acquiring new customers aside from doing PR hits like this?
3: Yep. Um, So one of the things that is about to launch uh, for depth is our browser extension, you can kind of think of it like honey, Mm. but for search. So we will actually be able to reach all of those mainstream users who are already shopping on Amazon, Wayfair, you know, all the all the major marketplaces, without them having to even think about it. So if you've ever used Grammarly, if you've ever used Honey, it just takes over the discount bar or it takes over the email. We do the same thing, but for search.
0: Absolutely. Fantastic. So when do you think the toolbar will come out? That's good. Sounds incredible. It's in alpha
3: right now. It should be
0: out in about three months. I am totally excited and can't wait. Thanks so much for letting me invest in the company. We'll talk a little bit more about uh, your growth strategies and uh, raising money when, uh, after our third interview, uh, which is coming up immediately. So next up on the program is a company called Krepling. K R E P L I N G dot com, uh, and their founder is Liam Garada. He um, is building a SaaS no-code e-commerce platform. So no-code everybody knows means you don't need a coder to build a website. E-commerce everybody knows Shopify, etc. Uh, and SaaS software as a service that means you just pay a certain amount per month. So uh, they charge fifteen to thirty-five dollars a month for small and medium-sized businesses industry term for that is smbs so if you ever hear the term smbs that's what it stands for small mid-sized businesses not the big giant corporations like ibm but you know company typically like under a thousand employees would be smbs under 500 actually uh 2,000 a month for enterprises they uh, launched payment fees in q1 of 2022 uh, and liam is the co-founder and ceo they were founded back in october of 2019. And they came in fourth place out of seven finishers right in the middle of the pack for LA 23. Uh, Although not too far behind. So we have a point based system, it typically turns out the first place and second place are usually pretty high above everybody else, but then three through seven in the rankings tend to be very closely uh, grouped revenue last month, uh, almost at 15k, they're growing 20% uh, month over month, which is a nice growth percentage that we're looking for in early stage startups. What that means if you're growing 20% month over month, set so you're probably double revenue in four months or so rule of 72, you can Google rule of 72 to understand how to calculate those very quickly. And they're trying to get the big D 2 C merchants out there as customers. Welcome to the program, Liam.
4: Thank you. We really would appreciate it.
0: We have a, a quick demo here uh, that we can show, and maybe you could sportscast this for the people who are listening. Describe what you see on the screen.
4: Yeah, sure. This is basically this, the, the run rate of getting started on Krappling. Users can simply head over to a website, uh, select a plan that resonates with their business, fill out their business details, and our AI auto-design tool then actually gives them a fully functioning website that has cross-border functionality in just a couple of seconds as opposed to the 12 to 18 month platforming process that is most common with uh, other other uh, e-commerce enablement companies.
0: H- how did it get all the creative into that? Uh, did it pull it from Instagram or something?
4: Actually, it's very much based on inputted data. So if a users, you know, usually you look at a re-platforming process, it's usually a very manual process. Um, we're building out technology that allows users to import their brand, their color palettes, import their products, and that creates them a new store based on those data sets. So. Um, it's pulling from day-to-day upload, uh, which really removes the pain point of, you know, starting a store from scratch, which is a pain point for large DTC-focused companies.
0: How, how do most uh, D2C companies or people who are popping up an e-commerce store build it today? Do they use Squarespace? Do they use Shopify? Do they build their own website? Do they use a Webflow or Bubble or one of those no-code tools and then plug in e-commerce? How does it typically occur today?
4: Yeah. I mean, it's, it's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. I think brands, you know, they, they leverage tools like Shopify, like Webflow, um, which are great tools for getting started. They choose from a theme and they're almost good to go in a couple of hours, supposedly. Um, the problem with today's e-commerce industry is when brands get a particular size, whether it be on Shopify or any other platform, you tend to pay an arm and a leg to begin to scale, whether mm. it's through revenue share, graduating to a developer focused solution, or even through third party apps. Um, And this is really what crapping is trying to solve we're building a no code enterprise commerce platform um, that allows users to create rich modern customer experiences, without the burden of hiring a full stack developer team or graduating to a platform that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And uh, so how did you come up with the idea for this business? And how did you get your first five customers?
4: Yeah, I think the, the opportunity really came to us from our own experience as e-commerce founders. We started off on, on native platforms like Shopify, um, and you know, that's when we started building out our own e-commerce store um, until moving aside to the more monolithic platforms, you know, the more developer focused platforms uh, as our business began to grow. You know, we spotted a shift very early on uh, that retailers were simply looking for ways to keep up. Um, this led them to explore more uh, sort of uh, developer focused solutions. Uh, solutions that Amazon had actually used to scale, namely the head- and headless commerce space and the service oriented architecture. Um, we saw this as a huge pain point. The status quo of no-code solutions being unable to support mid-market brands with a scalable solution led to millions of customers that were not only underserviced, um, but also overpriced. Um, so this is exactly why we built Crapling. Our, our ability and, and value really lies in our way to power those brands who have outgrown this type of decentralization. And we've so been going on that concept ever since.
0: The big criticism of Shopify, if you're starting a small store paying whatever 29 bucks a month, 79 bucks a month, whatever their SaaS fee is, is not a big deal. However, they charge 2.9% plus 30 cents a transaction, which again, no big deal. If you're selling $1,000 a month, that winds up being another $29. Um, if you get to 10,000 a month, it's 290. Again, you're probably not going to notice it. But then once you hit 100,000, you're at. 2,900 in extra fees, you hit a million, you're at 29,000. And somewhere between 100,000 and a million, people who are using Shopify start to say, hey, wait a second, I'm giving too much money to Shopify. Is that correct?
4: Yeah, um, it also ropes into the fact that there's this this sort of service-orientated structure Shopify runoff, um, other native solutions do as well, that if you want to add functionality to your, to your store and the native solution doesn't support what you want to add, uh, you have to find an app for that, which makes stitched together, different systems, highly fragmented. You're paying uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars a month when it comes to the big brands and extra app functionality, or you're hiring a whole developer team uh, just to get mm. things off the ground and roll out updates. Um, this is where the term graduating from a Shopify or no-code solution comes. Um, and this is particularly because you know building a platform that is a one-size-fits-all um, isn't really the way to go anymore. E-commerce has evolved, especially over COVID. Um, and to have a platform that is really focused on a mid-market enterprise brand is what's lacking uh, what we saw was lacking as e-commerce founders which is why we set out to build the solution ourselves
0: yeah i think they call this headless e-commerce where you kind of separate the back end from the front end is that sort of what you're doing or just a more affordable faster easier way to do all this because do you also charge remind me for a percentage of the sale
4: yeah no exactly i mean the headless is not quite up our alley. We do separate some some functionality, but we're more on the services, microservices-based architecture. Mm. So if users want to add functionality, they can integrate with the best-to-breed applications, as opposed to stitching together through developers or paying for about five different apps that currently don't provide the right functionality they're looking for. Um, so that's really what we're based on as a microservices architecture. Um, and that's really the bed and brother for our success as, 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 as it's been so far. We've been able to tack those brands and Allow them to re-platform not only because we're services-based and we're integration-based, but also because our re-platforming process isn't as painful. You know, we surveyed early on that the you know, most merchants of the size we're after are happy to leave from a native solution. The issue is the 12 to 18 month re-platforming process and the risks they have to take in order to do that. Um, so to find any scalability. So really,
0: it's about functionality for you guys. No, people aren't going to use the service necessarily to save money. That may happen or may not, but. It's really about just being able to quickly iterate on the front end of your site and the functionality on the back end.
4: Yeah, I think scalability is a thing that's been left sort of into the dust when it comes to e-commerce uh, and it's something that's been in demand in this post-COVID era. Even pre-COVID, we saw it quite heavily on our platform. Um, and the merchants we're, we're after are scaling rapidly. They're, they're, they're looking for solutions. Uh, you know, This is the notion, once you hit $5 million in sales, you then have to find a solution to case towards that. Then when you hit $10 million, you have to find another solution. So. Merchants are constantly battling with this this, this cycle of trying to find a, a suitable solution. We're trying to remove that by building a solution that is built towards this specific category that is also no code enablement and no code friendly.
0: Awesome. Well, listen, continued success. And let's bring back our other two founders if we can. So joining uh, Liam is Zach again from shopdef.com and from Fathom, Paul Block. So if we can have all four folks on. I'll just throw out a question and maybe we can just go through this in the order in which you appeared on the show, Paul, Zach, and then Liam. Um, What did you learn about presenting your startup to investors in the Launch Accelerator?
2: Right. So, I mean, I thought that the Launch Accelerator itself was just like a great opportunity to really learn how to tell a compelling story in three minutes time. And as you said, examples matter and you know showing not telling in many cases matters uh, quite a bit um i think that the the format of you know weekly pitching was you know indispensably valuable in that in that in that case just constant practice
0: yeah and how many times did you pitch investors in total cuz we moved it i know when we went to uh, remote we went from a 12 week program and i think we went all the way up to like maybe 16 weeks including the week zeros and the week minus one where we sort of had jackie do some training i did some training before we brought the investors in can you think of how many times you actually presented to investors
2: i, I mean it's I. Uh, i mean there's i think it was something around 14 at yeah. least you know times that we we invested to various different groups and then there's you know all of the other times in between where you know we 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 you know, had conversations afterwards and mm, you know, pitched to teams, yeah. follow-ups, etc You know, it's so incredible. I would say it was you know, you're 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 pitching kind of nonstop week mm-hmm. after week, you know, if if not once, twice, or even three times.
0: And people don't know this, but we record it. We used to record it with cameras and I'd bring Sir Charles on the ones and the twos to actually set up a giant A V, break it all down. It was a full day's work, sorry, to my teams. Now we just have it in uh Zoom. We could just hit the record button, which Takes away the need for all the equipment I bought over the last decade. Uh, Really hilarious. If not, I would cry over all this equipment I spent tens of thousands of dollars on. Uh, And then we would make transcripts. We would also talk about maybe uh, keep track of the questions people asked you and, and kind of organize them so you could actually understand the questions even better. Zach, what did you learn about presenting specifically to investors? And I'll expand the question a little bit as we go answering questions from investors.
1: Yeah, when
3: answering questions uh, get to the point. That's, that's probably the main thing. Um, mm. Telling a story is great. But when they start answering when they start asking questions, it's good just to be terse with your responses. I think it, tight it, responses tight is right. Yep. Did you do that in your first answers? In my very first answers with launch? Probably not. <laughs> I think later on, we learned uh, that valuable lesson as, as uh, time went on.
0: If you were to teach people about this, um you know, the way we uh, sort of instructed you on, hey, listen to the question, answer it concisely. What would you say the benefit of answering concisely is?
3: You give them time to follow up, ask more questions. It it Mm -hmm. just it leaves more room for dialogue that you wouldn't have if you just do a a huge monologue.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And it's a little bit scary to answer questions, I would think, uh, especially when you start getting some like really notable investors in the room, which, you know, we'll have a range of investors from seed investors, members of syndicates, syndicate leads, seed funds, venture funds, the biggest investors in the world like Sequoia and Kraft uh, will meet with our companies one on one incredible. So maybe you could tell me what is the mistake you see people doing? And why do you think they make that mistake of giving this long rambling answer?
3: Uh, It's it's probably just nerves. Um, Mm -hmm. They feel like they haven't explained enough. They feel like they maybe they haven't rehearsed the answer enough. So it's just It's just uh, talking through it. Uh, Honestly, I do feel like um, the remote nature of Launch's Accelerator helped with some of the nerves because you don't have to stand up in front of somebody as much Mm. anymore. So it was interesting going through this new cycle of kind of Zoom-style meetings with big-name investors through Launch. Um, But yeah, I'd say just take a deep breath. Take your time. Don't go too long. Go straight into the the numbers. um, Cut out some of the filler words. You know,
0: Basic stuff. And it becomes much easier when you see a transcript of yourself saying um and, uh, yep. and it takes you 300 words to actually answer the person's question if you answer it that's at great. all that I mean, that's one of the frustrating things I live with on the other side of the table as an investor. Now is a lot of times I'll ask a question, I get 300 words back, which takes two or three minutes. And I never actually get the answer to the question. So all that yep. time is burned, the credibility of the founder goes down. And my understanding of the startup goes sideways. Yep. Liam, what did you learn through presenting? answering questions uh, and then I'll expand the question a little bit here and following up with investors.
4: Yeah. Everything Paul and Zach said, I think, you know, showing not telling is a a big thing. I think we learned that very early on uh, the first time we pitched uh, Crappling to you, especially um, we learned that, you know, we we got to get to the point as quickly as possible. Um, But I also think explaining, you know, the problem you're solving. I think that's something we lost uh, in our first couple of pitches. Um, Mm. But as time went on, I think that's one thing we perfected and, that even went into, you know, how investors would interpret the startup and ask questions to us. If we could answer some of the five burning questions in the pitch itself, then the questions we tend to answer will be more focused on the things we want to answer that help the investor better understand the startup. So um, I think that's been the biggest lesson that we had for sure.
0: If I remember correctly, Liam, correct me if I'm wrong here, you got off to a slow start, but you finished very strong in the Accelerate, correct?
4: Yeah, no, exactly. We started off, um, you know, my, my co-founder and myself were v- very much technical in that sense. Um, you know, understanding e-commerce is something that comes almost second nature to us, but translating that and explaining that through a, a pitch and to investors is something we we almost missed in the opening pitch. So um, that was something that really helped us, sort of through the accelerator, was not only through the guidance of teams, but also from actually testing it out, going in front of investors, um, trying it out, getting you know certain questions. Repetitively knowing how to answer those questions broadly through the pitch um, I think was a great lot of learning curve for us even for talking to, to customers, I think it really sort of profounds that as well being able to communicate more directly and more to the point.
0: And this falls into the category for people who are watching deliberate practice. So if you just uh, go on a basketball court and start throwing the ball on the hoop randomly from all different locations, okay, sure you're going to get 10,000 hours of throwing the ball in the basket. But in the NBA, they have machines that actually will look at the arc, the release, the stance of the person how what percentage knees bent, and they'll shoot 100 three pointers from four different specific spots, look at tape afterwards and really try to understand it. So we created the launch accelerator, I said, Hey, let's record everything. Then I said, Hey, let's transcribe everything. Then I said, Hey, let's record transcribe, and then categorize every question. And then the founder starts to realize, hey, wait a second, if I'm getting this question, and it's, you know, every single week, I'm getting the same question, what about Shopify? Well, maybe I should put a slide about what about Shopify, or if it was fathom, uh, you know, uh, how do you uh, recommend? What's the process of wh- what process does the AI use to recommend, you know, uh, the next podcast, you can actually put that into the uh, presentation and actually form it as a question. So right about now, you're thinking, what about Shopify? How is this different than Shopify? Great question. Let me answer it. So you can literally go back and incorporate that. I'm sure you did a little bit of that, correct?
4: Yeah, back and forth. Um, in fact, that was an interesting thing. The more things we incorporated, the more interesting questions we got. and we really got to figure out, you know, what is exactly investors really thinking about? What are they pushing back on? What is, what do they like? What don't they like? Um, But you're going to only get there once you're answering the key questions and how you're different from any other player in the the space, which I think, as you said, you've got to answer that in the first sort of five, ten seconds of your pitch. (laughs) All
0: right, so uh, let's do another question about fundraising. Zach, I'll start with you. We'll do uh, Zach, Paul, uh, Liam on this one. Zach, uh, tell us about the fundraising process. Obviously, coming out, you're in the hottest fundraising market I've seen in my lifetime possibly the only exception being the dot com boom where people would throw money randomly at pitches without ever using the product or knowing what it was. It was a bit of a mania. We have a bit of a mania now combined with very sophisticated investors uh, placing very big bets, so it's slightly different. Uh, I'd say it's distinctly different in that regard. One was a mania. One is, you know, based on actual performance, greed, (laughs) and a little bit of FOMO. Uh, But what was it like to raise money in this environment? You did particularly well. You got a lot of attention for what I think is a very difficult pitch saying, hey, we're going to go after Google. Most people gave up on that pitch for the last 10 years.
3: Yeah, the environment's very different. There is more capital that's out there. And there's also different fundraising vehicles that weren't accessible in the past. You've got REVs and all these sorts of new funky party round things that are coming out. Um, That made the dynamic very different. It allowed us to meet with a lot of other operators that we usually wouldn't get to meet with. So. That was our approach. Um, I will say, though, that with the new access to capital, there's also a lot of other not so good startups that are popping up and, and are promoting it. So there is there's more volume of capital, but there's also more volume of startups that are out there mm. trying to raise funding. So it kind of leveled the playing field in terms of like it didn't make it that much easier to raise money. Um, mm. But, you know,
0: but you were successful despite all that. You had a lot of interest. We, were, we were very
3: successful, brought on awesome operators and investors across, you know, e-commerce, payments, AI, blockchain, all that stuff.
0: Did you pursue the party round or did you pursue the, let's try to get a strong lead and fill in after that?
3: Yeah. So what we did was we went party round as a means to build momentum. So we got on amazing people who opened up their networks to us. And from there, we met, we continued to kind of meet more institutional investors. Uh, they got into the round. So it was it was a different approach. We just kind of met all these awesome operators and we wanted to get on board um, angels and operators and then we use that to build the momentum to lead to a much bigger round.
0: And that works really well in today's environment. I think we're seeing more and more of that. Hey, we're just going to start the raise. We're not going to wait, we'll start bringing in small checks. Because what a lot of angels have learned is if they Mm -hmm. don't commit early, and they say, let me know when you find a lead, the lead takes the whole thing. Yep. And so just to if you do game theory, If you don't commit, boy, you're going to have a problem. Uh, Of course, one of the value propositions we try to add to what we're doing is when the companies graduate, we try to do up to half the round. uh, And uh, we were lucky enough to invest. And my gosh, I think uh, we overperformed as well with our uh, group of investors. So you absolutely uh, did. (laughs) Yeah, very quickly. um, It's a little bit of a crazy time right now, but we're very excited to be in business with you. Uh, all right. So and how are you doing, Paul, with your fundraising?
2: We're doing really well. Um, initially, we were going after uh, a lead investor and we actually pivoted also just to going to a party round, in mm. part just because, you know, we didn't want to have to continue courting investors while leaving money on the table from angels. And that would allow us to, you know, start accelerating in ways that we couldn't when we were still just, you know, only two people that were really, you know, full time. So that was a kind of a strategic change that we made. And, you know, <clears throat> I think that, uh, you know, one of the other strategies was was actually lowering our original amount that we were looking for uh, to put a little more pressure on um, investors uh, when they mm-hmm. see that you're not actually raising as much. It creates a, a little bit more of an impulse for them to to get in. Got and it. scarcity, um, fear scarcity, of missing out. Yeah, absolutely,
0: going to fill up quickly. We're going to go back to work. The valuation is going to increase. Nothing right. makes and, raising around. Nothing makes raising around easier than being oversubscribed.
2: Right, and and you always have the option to oversubscribe. You know, so long as when we're starting out this party around, we're you know kind of doing a post-money value cap that w- that's you know kind of right for us that allows us to do that. You know, without giving away too much of the company. I'd say like. To any of the startup, uh, you know, founders that are listening, um, you know, one thing that I learned through this process um, is that success isn't easy, but it's possible. Mm. And um, persistence is really key. You're going to get a lot of no's before you get a yes. And, you know, ultimately, VCs that you speak to, um, you know, they're all incredibly smart people, but they also have their own biases. Um, And they're going to have opinions and you can't get discouraged. Um, not everyone mm. is going to see your vision, but there are those that will.
0: What was the, uh, you know, like this will never work kind of feedback you got about your product? I'm curious because that's got to burn you a little bit. And oh, you for sure. I mean, the,
2: you, know, the, you know, sometimes you get the feedback that, uh, hey, there's, you know, um, aren't podcast players a dime a dozen, you know, sort mm. of thing. Or, you know, like, are you really going to go head to head with, you know, Apple and Spotify, et cetera. And it's like
0: competition. Yeah, yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So competition is a big one that we got, you know, and also the, I think, you know, just the nature of, of, uh, the, the accelerator itself is most of the companies were kind of post launch early revenue and we were actually pre launch pre revenue. So, you know, we have been playing catch up. You know, we've been building the technology to get it to market as fast mm-hmm. as we can. So a lot of investors were eager to kind of like see the product in action, you know, not just in the prototype. And that I'd say like, you know, initially, you know, it it didn't play very well. And, you know, but finally getting something to market, it's something that was in people's hands was, was invaluable, you know? So in that way, anyways, we're, we're, I think that the big lesson is keep going yes, and just keep going and you know and and for people that think you know it's like hey i have a great idea get a prototype when you have a prototype at the very least you have something in your hands and you can you can demonstrate how how you're solving a real problem
0: as i always tell people like a picture is worth a thousand words and like a a a movie is worth like ten thousand words and uh an mvp or a demo is worth like a million words so you will just get so much more value out of having an MVP people can click on. All of a sudden, their brain, it really is like a, a brain chemistry thing. When they see a demo, what happens is uh, even if it's an incomplete demo, even if it's a non functional uh, wireframe, your brain starts firing because you're having an experience. That brain is firing, and your mind is such a creative uh, organ that it just fills in what's not there. So when it doesn't see something, they might say, oh, what if you added this? Or, oh, what if you had this feature? Or like I did, hey, I'm, I got the test flight open right now. I wonder if you took the album art out and you put in your chapters, if that would be better. The discussion becomes much more textured, much more based in reality, which then means if you're having a te- textured conversation about reality, uh, writing a check becomes a lot easier, doesn't it? Right. And it's also,
2: it's not, the question is, uh, you know, whether you can build it. You You just did. And, you know, now the question is, is like, okay, taking it from this stage, where can we, where can we bring it?
0: Yeah, everything becomes a race for credibility, as I tell folks, and, you know, you're so much more credible when
4: people can use the product, (laughs)
0: obviously. Liam, what did you learn about raising money uh, and working with investors and where are you at with your fundraising?
4: Yeah, we we had a pretty crazy time before we joined the Accelerator. I think we had a lot of uh, talks of potential investors, but I think, you know, the nature of the Accelerator process really helped us refine sort of how we're going after investors and how to value certain, you know, investors over others, especially. Um, I think it's, as you said, a crowded market, um, it's ca- crazy capital going around. And I think for us, we really wanted to have the right fit that's going to be with us you know, in the trenches and it's going to be with us long term in that sense. Um, and I think that's really what we sort of knew how to identify. I think once you speak to so many investors, you really start to value, um, you know, w- what kind of value add they can bring as well as, as opposed to capital, you know, a capital intensive raise was something we didn't want to do. Um, mm. So, yeah, I think that was, I think the biggest sort of wake up call for us is, you know, it's not just crazy markets don't necessarily mean good capital. So I think that was something that really sort of woke us up and sort of listen, you know, value these leads and value these investors you're speaking to. Um, and yeah, it's, I think it's just got it got more crazy. A lot of investors, I think, we spoke to, you know, as soon as we saw that was sort of part of Accelerator, that's sort of a new reason to speak, new reason to open conversation, um, which is great. I mean, uh, I think it's good for, those was a great sort of process, even during the Accelerator and post and pre. <laughs>
0: uh, it's one of the great things when you're in an Accelerator, I recommend, obviously, ours, because <laughs> we run it. Uh, then there's also Y Combinator and Techstars, which are also very good. Um, I think the drop off after that uh, for these is pretty significant. Um, that being said, joining any accelerator, as long as you're not giving away more than six or 7% of your company for a brand new company is not a big deal, because it will start the conversations, you could even flip a local accelerator, you know, in Miami or in London or wherever, into going to one of the big three. And that actually then okay, you are know, diluted 6%, 7%, depending on the program, you have know, diluted 15%. But boy, your network has exploded. And now you raise a series A or a big seed round, and you'll make it back with that. And it does open up all conversations. If you're in an accelerator, especially the top three, people assume you have a relatively good chance of closing around of funding, which means they're going to take it seriously because Oh, if I don't get into this round, clocks ticking, I may never get into the startup. That's really the value of these I can tell you, my Lord, Uh, starting an accelerator is very easy and running one is extremely hard and painful the amount of work it takes uh, for our team to do this to sort through all the companies applying to spend 16 weeks with them my lord it is hard and uh, i think a lot of people think the accelerators are like really easy to do i Hmm. can tell you i thought that and i was wrong it is a ton of work and uh we like to put a lot of work into it, so I hope you guys had a great experience Absolutely. at the accelerator. Yeah,
2: your team is awesome. Shout out to Jackie, Presh, oh, Charles, thank you. all of yeah. them. They did. They're fantastic.
0: That is great to hear. Um, they, I mean, we really put a lot of work into it, and it's been great for us. We have our first uh, unicorn company coming out of the accelerator. Accelerator has only been around for four years now, and uh, Grin, uh, and we have m- multiple ones now that are worth nine figures. But uh, you know, we have a unicorn, and so uh, I think if we get one unicorn every. 100 companies that goes through the accelerator will do just fine and be worth it. Um, but it's worth it just to be able to be there at the moment of inception of these great companies just with three great founders today. Uh, really excited to be in business with all of you and great to have you on the program. If you had to give one piece of advice to people who are, you know, thinking of starting a company, things you could go back and tell yourself in day zero, you're trying to start a company, you got an idea, it's your best piece of feedback. Just somebody who's considering taking the jump and being an entrepreneur, going around the horn, lightning round. Do it. Okay. Paul said. <laughs> Do it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um,
3: I would say just put your product out there. The earlier the better. I know Paul said it earlier in the conversation, but don't be afraid. Like people aren't mm. really going to steal your idea. Um, in the early days, no one's really even paying attention to you. So just put it out there, see if there's a market for it, and then just keep building. That's probably the top piece of advice when I was starting out there was uh, other ideas that I had in mind, and I was always afraid to put them out there. And um, obviously, they don't go anywhere when you do that. So you have to be willing to take a risk.
0: That is something that we hear from young founders all the time. What if somebody steals my idea? Well, <laughs> when you launch your idea, if it's successful, you can be certain 100 people will steal your idea. 100 people have tried to, you know, compete against Postmates, DoorDash, Uber, Eats, exactly. and, you know, Instacart, of course, you're going to inspire competitors if you're successful And in the beginning. Nobody cares. Nobody knows who you are. You're under the radar. I had a company that we were going to syndicate, and they're like, "I'm really scared of sending my deal memo to nine thousand people." I'm like, "These nine thousand accredited investors are also potential customers, and yep. we'll tell everybody about your product." You actually kind of want to get the word out to this group of influential people. And they're like, "I never thought about it that way." Yeah, let's do it. Like, okay, uh, coming around the horn, Liam.
4: Yeah, I, I build on what Paul and Zach had said. I'll add to it by saying, you know get to market as quickly as possible. There are other vehicles, mm. you know, don't wait to get funded. I think nowadays, I think you even precede, um, and Paul knows you've got to have something that works and look great, um, you know, and I get, get that done as soon as possible. And I think that was something that we learned. and need to learn early on is, you know, get, 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 get it done and get it to market as quickly as you can. All
0: right. If I could ask you to do one thing as loyal members of my audience is to try the products, go to fathom.fm. Try out Paul's company, Fathom, uh, doing AI uh, for podcasting, getting you your next podcast that much quicker. Uh, Try shop deft, D-E-F-T, S-H-O-P-D-E-F-T dot com, Zach's company, and uh, see if you can join the beta. Uh, You have to fill out a form. And if you are willing to pay for a concierge to help you solve your problem, uh, this is an amazing, great service that's going to save you a ton of time. And try krepling.com k r e p l i n g.com liam's company if you're in e-commerce and always give feedback to the founders almost universally the founder gets their first name at their company name if you have great ideas remember founders spell love t i m e give them some time if you're an angel investor if you're a venture firm you're a seed fund these are great companies for you to reach out to the founder and get to know now uh before they hit scale and you still have an opportunity uh, to partner with those companies. We'll see you all next time on This Week in Startups. Bye-bye.